Hey, football fans, this is Diana Rossini from The Athletic. Get the top stories in pro football snapped directly to your inbox with our latest NFL newsletter, Scoop City. Jacob Robinson and I will bring you the daily scoop of top NFL articles, posts, and podcasts every Monday to Friday. Sign up for free now at theathletic.com backslash scoop. Hey there, Kent here, producer for Prospects to Pros. Got a special episode for you this week. In honor of draft week, we did a special crossover episode with Robert Mays at the Athletic Football Show. Robert talks to the guys about some of their big lessons learned during this crazy 2021 draft process. So enjoy the episode, and also, hopefully, you can join us on Thursday night for our live stream at 9.30 Eastern. We've got Robert Mays, Nate Tice, and of course, Dane Brugler heavily involved. So check out the Athletic app, the Athletic YouTube, Facebook, and more for that. But until then, enjoy the episode. Happy drafting. I'm thrilled now to welcome the co-hosts of the Prospects the Pros podcast, draft experts for both The Athletic and for NFL.com, Dane Brugler and Lance Zerline. Guys, thank you very much for doing this. I sincerely appreciate it's it. It's draft week. This is uh, it's exciting, right? Yeah, I'm pumped. I can't believe you guys have time to do it. So thank you very much. I'm sure you have 10 million things going on. So I floated this idea to Dane last week, and I, you guys do such an incredible body of work during this process. I mean, if you look at the beast and the the draft guide that Dane puts out, it's an unfathomable amount of information. And then all of the hundreds and hundreds of profiles that Lance does. And I wanted to try to tap into that work in a big picture way. You guys have such a unique brand of knowledge. And we've talked so much about these specific players and the quality of these specific players. But I wanted to zoom out a little bit and take a bird's eye view at both this class and the process of evaluating this class to see if there were any big picture takeaways that we might be able to talk about, just where the sport is going, things that you can't really see until you look at this whole group of players at one time. So, Dane, I'll start with you. If you were just kind of writing down what you'll remember the most about this draft class, not even just the players, but the process. What would you say your number one takeaway from it has been? I would say uh, one of the toughest aspects of scouting just in general is separating reasons and excuses. And Mm -hmm. that is something that we encounter every year, especially with quarterbacks. And I mean, I think my entire Jordan Love scouting report was basically trying to decipher reasons and excuses, (laughs) but it stood out a lot this year with the pandemic and, you know, a potentially special group of quarterbacks. Uh, You know, Justin Fields was not very impressive against Northwestern, but he was missing Chris Olave, who, you know, had a positive test. Is that a reason or an excuse? Zach Wilson, uh, you know, his tape was up and down a little bit versus Coastal Carolina, which was the best defense he faced all season. The fact that that game was scheduled 48 hours before it happened, everything that goes along with that, reason or excuse. And then Trey Lance played in one game last fall. Wasn't his best game. There was obvious rust. The fact that there was maybe a little bit added pressure because he knew it was going to be the only game that season and his final game at the college level, reason or excuse. So, you know, you look at all these quarterbacks and you're trying to separate reasons from excuses and it's tough every year, but especially so this year when you factor in COVID and how that affected the season. 
it's so funny how quickly I adapt to these things. The way we talk about this stuff, it's like, oh, he opted out of the college football season. He only played one game. They played a game 48 hours before they had originally scheduled the game. In my mind, it's like, oh, yeah, that's just what they did last year. It's paradigm altering. This stuff has Mm. never, ever happened before. And maybe I'm an exception, but it's so funny how quickly I get used to talking about it in these terms. Lance, how about you? Would you say that there is one big picture idea that you walked away from this process with? Maybe that's a lack of what what the lack of a combine did, the lack of information you had. Just one thing that you'll remember most from going through the last nine months or so. Yeah, I really do think it's lack of information in general. Um, The lack of the combine has really, what I'm finding out is it's really, They've had a medical combine here in early April, and some teams that I've spoken with don't feel comfortable now with the information they got on some players. And because they don't have more time, you know, usually you get that in February, you do your homework, maybe the player gets retested with another specialist, and there's not the same turnaround, there's not the same time. And so I think the inability to have a combine is going to hurt some players with injury, red flags. I think. Me trying to figure out where the injury red flags stand up, like is this is this enough to cause a player to fall out of the first round or not? That's a lack of information because it's an unknown. A player's ability, like Gregory Rousseau, where is he now? Where is he body type wise, where uh, compared to where he was in 2019, and can he rush from you know from from off the edge? And that wasn't a great pat, you know, Jason Oway. Why did he have zero sacks and only five the year before these great traits? Like, it's just there's so many unknowns. I have never in my life seen so many unknowns from the tape to the 2020 opt-outs to the medicals to some players not choosing to do certain things when it comes to their workouts at pro days. This is the year for a lack of information and projections beyond what any professional team should ever have to project. Like hopefully it will never be that way again for a team to be this relatively in the dark because I'm definitely in the dark, but I can tell you, I can promise you now, Robert teams are also uh, in some ways in the dark because they haven't been able to go into the schools and do as much digging around on the information and the personal you know, the personal character of these players. And so we don't get as much information on our end when we dig around with teams. So I think it really is the lack of information. And it starts even before the combine with the inability to get into the schools as often as the teams would like. I think that that part's key. Uh, This area scouts not being on the road in the fall, that just sets the stage. Just I mean, because most of the time, the hay's in the barn by January. And Mm -hmm. then especially by February, where we know... All these prospects are puzzles, and we have most of the puzzle pieces by January. We get even more after the combine, and so you know by March we have almost a complete picture. This year, it's so everything's so much later, and I mean even the simple things like verified height, weight, length. We had to wait until March in the pro days to get that. Uh, usually, we have that from the previous spring, um, you know, but not this year due to COVID. And then you know the medicals. That's like Lance said, I mean, we're the not happening until April. Uh, you know, we're still, you know, this morning getting a text about a player that you know we didn't really know if there was a there was an issue. Uh, you know, Terrace Marshall, his knee was flagged. Aziz Ajilari, some teams have an issue with his knee mm-hmm. that could cause him to fall. You know, talking to scouts these last few weeks, they're going into these meetings, these final meetings that are usually kind of cut and dry at this point with their fingers and toes crossed, just hoping they don't hear about a injury, something the medically related that came in late. 
that now they have to take a player off a board or, you know, it's just something that the, the doctor flagged or the trainer. So it's, it's in normal years, like I said, the puzzle pieces, they're all, we have them by January and then definitely after the combine this year, it's just, we're still scrambling to put these puzzle pieces together here the week of the draft. Lance, do you think the teams are going to be a little bit more risk averse because of this? Are there going to be more instances where a player is just off a board because there's some murkiness about the medical situation? Or do you think that the risk appetite for some teams that might be willing to take a swing on that is still there? No, I, I've talked to, I've talked to teams about a couple of players, one with, one with some off the field, uh, concerns and one with a medical. And I think it depends on who the player is. What, what I found is if the player is talented enough, they're willing to take the risk. That's kind of my thought too. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't matter. And it really is. And sometimes it doesn't matter, but because there's so many unknowns on so many layers of players, either through their tape or who they are as players or medicals or whatever the case may be, teams, I think, are going to opt in on really talented players in the first round and worry about it later. If you're not quite as talented, like I'll give you an example. So I, I love Jason Oway. Love Jason Oway. But and he doesn't have any medical issues that I know of. Aziz got Aziz Ojolari. Yeah, you don't have any medical issues when you're a cyber cyborg set from the future. It's hard right. to have any medical issues there. Exactly, but because you're not sure, because you're not sure, he's a great tester, but you're not sure on the the tape. You don't get these guys. So a position coach used to be able to get their hands on players, and and there's some of that at, at the pro day. But when you had your 30 players in on your individual visits, you can have your your D line coach get in there, and I want to see you do this. Show me this. I want to I want to teach you this, and I want to see how you respond with this. That's not there. And so if you have any questions about guys, whether it's medical or playing wise. And you're not sure borderline first, they may not go off of projections like they usually do because of traits. They may just say, I want the talent, the guy that I know for sure has the talent. And so a guy like Jalen Phillips, for example, who has wrist surgeries, who has concussions in his background, who has some other off the off the field concerns. He's so talented that I've had teams tell me he's just not getting out of the first in another year. If you had answers on the other players around him, yeah, he might fall out of the first, but not this year. Not this year. He's not going to. He's going to go in the first. So it's actually There's also the positional exact stuff opposite. there too, right? Where it's if well, there are sure. other pass rushers or it was a stack class, maybe you could wait on somebody like that. But if he's the most talented guy at that position, maybe it pushes him up a little bit in a way that he wouldn't be in another class. Yeah, but Christian Barmore is clearly to me the most talented defensive tackle, and he could fall out of the first. Yeah. That's and it's tough because it's defensive tackle is obviously a weak position this year. So will a team that knows you know they they need to address defensive tackle will they take that chance? I, I had someone with the team last week mention those thirty visits specifically as the biggest issue with this process: not being able to bring those guys to your facility to see if they mesh culture wise, uh, just to get to, you know get to uh, know the person a little bit better, uh, not just so, not the uh, just the player. You know, you could do extra medicals on these visits. Uh, you know, those, missing those 30 facility visits is huge for how a lot of teams operate and how they decide who to draft. A lot of teams will invite players and then after they leave, they cross them off. It's, it's, it's a way that they can eliminate guys from their board. That missing part of the process is something that's looming large with a lot of teams. So let's get into some more nitty gritty here, not just the big picture stuff, but a couple specifics about this class. Dane, would you say there are two or three observations 
whether it's a scheme or a trend or a positional specific thing that kept making its way into your notes. Just every day, it seemed like you wrote down some variation of it. When you look at offenses and and you evaluate the quarterback position, college offenses are based on trying to make it as easy as possible. And Mm -hmm. it's not the job. What a concept. Right, exactly. And it, it, but it's not the job of a college coach and a college team to develop that quarterback for the next level. And I, I you know, we see more and more of that, whether it's, you know, uh, read based offenses, RPOs, heavy RPOs, it does make it tough. And you want to see when you value the quarterback, you want to see the full inventory of throws. And that's just, it, it feels like it's getting more and more difficult based off of play style, what these offenses are doing. And so, you know, it's just, it takes, you have to watch more and more tapes, which, you know, you, you need to watch as much as you can anyways on these quarterbacks, but you need to watch almost every throw they make just to get that full inventory of, of passes. Uh, you know, a lot of these offenses are a very defined process. You know, you look at what Mac Jones was asked to do at Alabama. It's a defined process. Same thing with Trevor Lawrence at Clemson. They still have to make the reads and the throws. I don't want to make it sound like they're it, it, very simplistic, but, you know, it still can make the evaluation difficult when you're trying to find that full library of throws. And I, I don't know, Lance, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but to me, that, that it, it feels like it's just becoming more tougher and tougher as these offenses try to make it more simplistic. It is. I mean, it's so tough. It's, it's, it's ironic that, you know, the quarterback with, with the most NFL-ready background from that standpoint is Trey Lance. Lance. Yeah. And the one who at the least amount is probably is probably uh, Trevor Lawrence. Now Lawrence has all these high. I'm just saying from a from a standpoint of how Clemson runs their offense. Their offense is is created, and Ohio State's and really all of the you know so many of the offenses now they're created to be streamlined and to take advantage of weaknesses. If you go watch Art Briles' offenses back in the day at Baylor and then all the the offshoots of that in the different places, they would literally run, oh, this is how simple it was. Oh, okay, this wide receiver, Corey Coleman, is really fast. Their corner is a 4-5 corner. The rest of you don't even run. Take one step, and then it's going to be go route versus one-man coverage, and we'll beat you that way. Well, that has nothing to do for the quarterback with in terms of an NFL you know, reading an NFL defense, it has nothing to do for the wide receiver with being prepared for the NFL either. You know what it does do? Puts a crap ton of points on the board in college football. <laughs> and so I think it's interesting that Trey Lance, uh, Trey Lance is a, a full field reader and his preparation is unbelievable. Trevor Lawrence, who I think is going to be able to do everything he wants to in the NFL, but his offense is not geared or designed to have him go full field read. That's not what they do. That's and and there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not by the way, I'm not bashing it at all. The proof is in the pudding. Ohio State, Clemson, these teams are always in and around the playoffs, always. And so, but it doesn't mean that their quarterbacks are the most NFL ready. And I do recognize that more and more people are saying, well, maybe the NFL needs to just implement the college game. And I actually am one of those people. I actually say that. I think the fact that RPO has made it in full-time into the NFL, I think the next thing is you're going to have to start simplifying for some of these quarterbacks because it's just, unfortunately, you have to dumb down the offenses because when you dumb them down, they're also incredibly dangerous. And yes, there are going to be teams who now with Lamar Jackson are playing chess and 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 if you don't eventually play chess with them, it's going to be hard to win. At some point, 
the mental part of the football game, whether it's the offense coordinator or the quarterback, or whatever the case may be, you're going to have to counterpunch when things get difficult and they show you things that, that you haven't seen. That's the danger of running a, a, an offense that is a little too simplistic. But the danger of running an offense that is too complicated is that you're going to put your quarterbacks in a longer, um, a longer runway to learn the offense, and it may take them longer to operate with the efficiency that your offense really needs. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. I want to dig into quarterbacks in a second, but Dan, I wanted to ask you, is there any other position that you feel like this came up a little bit? I remember talking to DJ and he said he wrote, you know, quarter turn a million different times for every single cornerback just right. because of the amount of quarters that's played in college. Is there anything that you've seen? Because offense, I think... It's so interesting that you say that, Lance, because I do think that there's been a convergence a little bit, right? There has. Because the old conversation was that it was difficult to evaluate spread guys, and now we see spread concepts that have filtered into the league a little bit, and I do think for the most part, NFL coaches have been better in the last five years than they probably were in the previous 10 about folding in concepts that make the game easier for their young players because they understood them in college. There's still a gap, obviously. I want to talk about that. But I think on defense, it's been less talked about and less explored. So, Dane, do you think that there's any sort of quirk or gap on the defensive side that consistently came up as you were trying to project guys from one level to the next? Yeah, and I think corners is a good example because of uh, just how they're how they're used. I mean, you look at there's some schemes, Alabama, Georgia, they're they're running a lot of man heavy stuff, and all those guys are going to get drafted, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. It drafted in the first two rounds, no question. And then, but there are other uh, schemes where you look at Northwestern and Greg Newsom, and you know you see a little bit of man, you see a little bit of zone, which you know every NFL team runs some variation of both man and zone. So you know you're looking for guys that can play both. But, uh, you know, you watch Greg Newsom and it's primarily off coverage. You know, he, he, he'll creep towards the line, but you don't see him jam. A lot of guys are in bail. Uh, it, it does make it tough uh, when just w- what they're asked to do. It's not that they can't jam. It's not that they can't mirror and match, but they're just not consistently asked to do that with how th- that specific, uh, specific scheme is run. So corners, I think definitely that that plays a part. Safeties, especially as well, just there's some safeties you watch and it's just the most boring tape you've ever seen. And, you know, Jordan <laughs> Fuller was like that for me last year. Yeah. Watching Ohio state. It's just boring tape. And you just have to understand what they're asked to do, what his responsibilities were and focus. You try to, especially when you're watching that end zone view, you're trying to focus in on his eyes and understand, okay, what's his vision? Where's he looking? What are his keys as, as he's processing things mentally? And it, you're trying to slow down the tape as the offense is, playing itself out and watching the safety to see how he's reacting. It, it can be tough with safeties to get exactly down what the thought process is and what they're being coached to do. I feel like safety is there's like a gold rush happening because you, as you, if you dig and you know how to sift, it feels like the 
value proposition of having a really good safety, and if you stack up like positional value according to PFF war, which we can get into that in a different conversation, but if you look at it, safety is pretty high on that list. Where safeties go in the draft and where you can find good safeties, I think that's the biggest gap between how much value a player actually gives you and where you could find a really good one. I mean, look at the safeties in this class. It doesn't look like there's one slated to come off the board until the late first or early second round. When in reality, exactly. And Jordan Fuller was a six round pick. It just feels like that is a place where there's buried treasure to be found in a really interesting way. And I think for a lot of the reasons that you're talking about, because the best guys at that position don't necessarily leap off the tape with the way the sport is played right now, both at the college level and the NFL level. Lance, is there a position or two that jumped out to you when you were watching? We're like, man, for whatever reason, these little quirks have just given me a hard time getting a handle on how I feel about these guys. Well, I feel like it's always safety because you've got, and here's the thing, you have so many players now, and it's not a negative, it's just... Like Elijah Molden, Javon Holland, you've got some Jamar Johnson. These are all guys who are – I still don't know where you put Elijah Molden if he's a safety or a corner, but there's so many – yeah, those blurred lines too. Well, those the are blurred a huge lines part of, of this. safeties versus nickel versus corner versus like it's difficult. Money linebacker. Because, yeah, that's how you're having to play it now. You have to play it. There's there's so many four wide receiver sets that you have safeties who are talented playing over the slot. But that doesn't mean so the first thing that Dane and I have to do is we have to determine, okay. They are lined up over the slot, and you can act like that's a positive unless you don't think they can do it on the next level. So you have to determine, can they play against a certain type of wide receiver if they get matched up in space? Do they have that ability? And if not, can they guard matchup tight ends? Do they have the ability? Are they too small to, to, to match up on tight ends? So it's become tougher with safeties because so many safeties are asked to cover the slot. So many safeties are basically, they're no longer single high. They're no longer a split safety. Look, they are basically down there in coverage, but, but you know, that's not going to be what they're asked to do in the NFL. Is it a trait or a skill that they have that could be beneficial? Absolutely. And I think it is with Javon Holland, but now I got to take all Javon Holland's tape, which a lot of it is, is as a down safety or even as a nickel, same thing with Elijah Molden and I've got to say okay how do I project him to different types of schemes or is this how I'm going to have to envision him as a draft prospect and Divine Diablo is the same thing I heard a team tell me this week from Virginia Tech he's a 220 pound safety who frankly is probably going to be a linebacker based on the conversations I've had and I'm trying to determine you know where he's going to get drafted I'm I'm doing that for NFL.com I put draft projections up there and I've I've understand now he's going to be a two slash three somewhere in the late second to early middle thirds and it really is going to depend on how the team envisions him so as we have in basketball in baseball and football if you follow all these sports you know that lines have truly been blurred on starting pitching on the openers in baseball where a guy will pitch one or two innings in basketball where you have guys who are almost positionless they just are uh, you know it's an amorphous position situation in football what used to be tweeners are now called hybrids and it makes it more difficult to try to put them into a box I don't want to put players into a box I don't think you should do that but at the same time you do have to have a home base like when the rubber meets the road what position does this guy play in our base packages that has to be determined at some point 
it's so funny because like you said the cracks show up in some cases where they don't in others you know the cardinals have tried to pick positionless players in the first round and even into the later rounds seemingly for the last five to seven years and they've had trouble they've had trouble finding roles for those guys but then you look at other teams and they love the fact that a guy could play safety in one situation money linebacker in another or he could slide into the slot from safety all those other things so it's almost like it's a virtue in some cases and a drawback in others, and you don't know which is going to be which. And that's what makes it so terrifying. And, and it makes you reconsider what positional depth on depth charts looks like. Because do you need three safeties now? Do you need four corners now? And I think that affects where you're going to be looking for those players, which takes me to my next question here. Dane, what would you say in your mind is the most interesting consideration or question that's crept up about positional value and scarcity and where teams want to find guys in this draft and how they're going to strategize. Yeah. And that's, I feel like, you know, we kind of look at this differently every single year and because each draft class is different, obviously, you know, there's a, an identity at each position and uh, certain positions are valued over others. And I'm going to kind of take this a step further. And when you're a team, how do you forecast forward? So, uh, like I think a great example is okay the Bengals this year, and, yep. and this isn't necessarily you know should they draft a receiver or the tackle. It's not necessarily that conversation, but when you look at this tackle class and how we think it stretches, should that affect who they take at five? Uh, because they feel like they like the tackle options in round two. Should that creep into their decision making, or when you have a top five pick, should it just be I'm just, I'm going to take the best player. I'm not going to elect. Uh, allow who could be there in the second round affect who I draft here. I think that is a a fascinating conversation because on one hand, I understand why you would forecast and look forward because you want to look at, okay, what are, what positions are the strongest in a given draft? And so I want to maximize each, each one of my picks. I want to come away with the best collection of players. So if I feel like tackle will stretch more so than another position, then maybe I'll take a, you know whatever position in the first and get my tackle in the second round, which you know usually isn't the case, but maybe in this year it is. Or do you say, you know what, the tackle is our highest graded player here. Let's take the tackle because we just I'm not going to allow what could be there in the future affect what we're going to do now. And so I I could really see it both ways. And so I mean I, Robert Lance, I want to I want to hear kind of how you guys feel about how you would attack that type of situation. I've thought about it for so many hours, specifically in regard to the Bengals. And I tend to lean the direction, the first direction you talked about, where let's not let it affect me. Because I think that falling into pre-draft evaluations for players and the hit rate on those guys specifically is dangerous in its own right. If you think I can find a starter on the offensive line in the second round, I just think that's dangerous talk, period. I also think that not even projecting forward into the second round, but projecting into other years, what is the case over a five-year period of which players are hardest and easiest to find? And I think for the most part, you're going to land on tackles being harder to find than wide receivers. And that's where I tend to drift when it comes to Cincinnati specifically is I just think about how hard it is to find a tackle in any given draft beyond the first round and in any given free agency class. It's really, really, really difficult. Look at what just happened with Orlando Brown. It took the 23rd overall pick for the Chiefs to trade for Orlando Brown. Orlando Brown is nowhere close, I think, positionally in the hierarchy to where a player like DeAndre Hopkins or Stephon Diggs would be that were traded around this time last year. They took the same thing, and those guys are better players at their positions. 
than Orlando Brown is. I just think it's hard to find those guys and either through free agency or eventually in the draft or the trade market, you're going to have to pay a premium. That's why I drift that direction. Lance, where do you come down on this? Well, I so I think it's I think what Kansas City did is an inter- interesting case study because they know they need to tackle and basically they measured okay, who will be there available for us? You have to try to read the board. Who's going to be there available for us here versus Orlando Orlando Brown? What do we give up for Orlando Brown? It ended up coming out to what amounts to when all the the pluses and minuses are added up from the the trade between the two teams, it amounts to about a 45th pick of the draft. So basically, they said, we like Orlando Brown game ready right now with the 45th pick as opposed to reaching for a tackle, which based on my evaluations, I believe a tackle at that position is a reach for anyone at the back end of the first. I personally see it as a reach, and I don't like the value there. I think you can get a better football player there and then a, and a, and a better value on a football player in, the, in your second or third round pick. So I, I think that I actually do believe in the concept of, of really having a feel for the board. And when I say feel for the board, it's really positions. Like I can tell you where the run on – where I, I believe I can tell you where the run on certain positions are going to be this year based on grades, based on NFL draft history, based on the flow of understanding through writing 400 plus 500 draft prospects you, in talking to teams, you get a feel for where the flow of the draft is going to be at certain positions. And so if you have a feeling for that draft flow and you understand that your draft needs are somewhere inside of there and you know where those positions are likely to go and you have a good feel for what the rest of the league is, then I think you do take that into account. I think you do take into account we can get wide receivers in the third or fourth that we like a lot, so we're not going to reach here in the first round, or we're going to get another position that's a weaker position. I think you have to balance out every season's board. And for the first time in a long time, I had a discussion with a league uh, executive who said that they are looking actively at what the board is for a certain position next year, that they feel like they've done enough homework on their board that they have a good feel for this position next year and that they may weigh that into their draft day decision, which is rare that you will hear a team say that they will do that. So I want to talk about the quarterbacks a little bit and not even the specifics of the guys in these cl- of this class, but what you learned while watching them. Would you say there was a overarching lesson or big picture lesson you took away from evaluating the quarterbacks over the course of the last year? Yeah, you know, it, it's tough. I mean, quarterback is obviously just an impossible position to feel 100% about because we don't know. There's so many variables and obviously we try to hit on what we feel is the most important traits and, you know, you go in order about, okay, decision-making, accuracy, uh, you know, poise, whatever, whatever your list is. You try to go through and you try to, okay, they check in the box. Are they close to checking the box? Uh, are they deficient in that area? You try to just go through and it's it, it can be really tough when you don't know all the information, especially in a, in a year like this. Uh, you look at the offense, it's like we hit on before, how some of them are uh, just with the defined reads and what they're asked to do. It could be tough. Right, with Mac Jones and Trevor Lawrence, I think it was along those lines. And then you have uh, you know, Wilson, uh, Fields, Lance. I, they're all doing something a little bit different, and you know, but they're all incorporating movement, boots, uh, sprints, play action. You, know, you watch that BYU offense, you're seeing Andy Reid influences. Uh, you see some mm-hmm. Sean McVay influences. With Ohio State, when I got done studying Justin Fields, 
I was more impressed with Ryan Day than I was Fields. And that's not meant to be a dig at Fields at all. It's more about Day's vision and his play calling, his ability to scheme open receivers, create vulnerable matchups, which allows Fields to execute. And a lot of times, Fields, he executed at a high level because when things are on schedule and uh, you know he, he sees it, he can rip off accurate strikes down the field. I, I think one thing that I, I think might have been a little bit tougher this year, I thought was... The way I was taught with quarterbacks is you want to try to evaluate as many drop eight situations as possible. Obviously, those are situations where there isn't a ton of pass rush, but there's eight coverage defenders forcing quarterbacks to account for more bodies, more outcomes, and really alter their process. And I feel like those situations are tougher to find because we're seeing more and more defenses either attack or we're seeing the quick game being such a big part of what offenses are doing. So it's, it's just seeing you know, less pressure on these quarterbacks. And so I think that that was a common theme with all three of these guys. But I mean, above all, with these quarterbacks, it comes down to intangibles. That's what, you know, I think I've learned most about the quarterback position is how important that part is. You know, go back to Josh Allen, uh, you know, coming out of Wyoming. Plenty of inaccurate throws on his tape. Plenty of, you know, just what are you doing uh, on his tape? But I know there are Bills and a lot of other teams were really bullish on uh, Josh Allen because of the intangibles and because of the physical traits. And I think this year we're and maybe it's part of the Josh Allen effect. I think we're seeing more and more teams willing to gamble on intangibles and just the, the raw traits, because, you know, if you if you have the size, athleticism, arm talent and you're a bright individual We'll we'll figure out the rest. I think a lot of teams, and that that's that to me, that's the Josh Allen effect. You know, bring them to me, bring them to us. We'll coach them up. We'll 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 take our swing with a guy like that. And I think this draft has a lot of those guys with field, not a lot, but that's talking about fields, talking about Lance. They they probably fall in that category. So it's just it's a really interesting group of quarterbacks. Lance, what would you say? What would you say is the thing you've learned about the position more than any other as you've gone through the process with quarterbacks this year? How I think number one, just um, just the mad dash to put so much love on every quarterback. It's just it's kind of crazy to me. I mean, I watch all these. I, I don't the the phrase. This is an. Elite Are you saying group. Zach Wilson isn't the greatest quarterback I mean, that's ever lived? This is, just is that what you're trying to say? An elite group of quarterbacks. What an elite group of talent. No, it's not. Stop using the phrase elite and generational, please. I mean, please stop throwing elite and generational on everything. Guys, and I'm talking to the media too. We've got to stop saying that stuff in general. I try to stay away from the phrase elite because that is a big, big deal to me. If you say yeah. somebody has generational anything or elite anything, unless you've not watched sports for very long, then you must not have any concept of what elite looks like and what generational looks like. And look, I love the fact that Zach Wilson can make those Aaron Rodgers throws. I, let me tell you how this works. Aaron Rodgers has been his favorite player for years and years. When he's in his backyard or in his on the football field or whatever he's doing, he's practicing those throws because that was his guy. I would practice the long step of Lewis Lloyd from the Houston Rockets when I was a kid. I'd tra- practice Clyde Drexler stuff. I would practice whatever I could of my favorite players. So just Are you a lonely you can- child, Lance. What's that? No, no, Were you no. A lonely I, child. No, I had two. I had two other. I had two other siblings. But I mean, look, just because a guy can make some kind of throw doesn't mean. You don't want Zach Wilson making that throw a whole lot. That's not the throw you want him making a whole lot. You want him making those throws that are smart decisions and delivered accurately on time where where you're taking the right throw every time. And then people just get blown away by the most 
it's just like trick shot generation now where you just get blown away by any kind of trick shot or any kind of production. You know, you couldn't, for example, you couldn't say anything bad about Dwayne Haskins because he had 50 touchdowns and an interception or whatever it was. I mean, God forbid he played one year at Ohio State and there was no possible way he could possibly fail. It was impossible. And yet here we are and he's a backup in, in Pittsburgh trying to hang on and make it. Look, the production's going to look insane that's the way it is in college football. And just because you play at a small school or you have accurate, and I learned this personally, the Josh Allen thing was a big teacher to me, a big teacher to me. So I, I have to take that seriously. Justin Herbert. Well, I thought he couldn't possibly take over. And I was told that he couldn't possibly lead a, a room full of, you know, tough guys and this, that, and the other, because he is just a, a country kid from, from uh, you know Eugene, Oregon, who played at Eugene in high school, played at Eugene in college. He didn't seem like he had much of a problem when he got there into the league this year. So just because guys do something on the pro level with tons of production, it doesn't mean they're going to be superstar status. Just because a guy is a lower level, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that, that they can't possibly raise their level of play just because they have issues with lesser talent around them sometime. But I just think the overall – desire to anoint every quarterback as an early first round push. I just don't see it. I mean, I've got one quarterback who I think personally is worthy of a top eight grade one quarterback in this class in terms of a grade. Now, it doesn't mean I don't project them to go higher, but one quarterback has that kind of grade, and it's Trevor Lawrence. I don't think any of the other big big five – I think Daniel Daniel Jones, <laughs> Freudian slip. I think Mac Jones is a second-round quarterback. I mean, that's where, where I would draft him. Justin Fields, to me, is more like a ninth or tenth quarterback. I think Trey Lance typically is going to be middle of the first in most years, but because it's such an important position and because everybody is in such a mad dash – Everything gets either shuffled up the draft board or the media pushes them into mock drafts way, way up the draft board, way ahead of where they should be. I was Michael Jordan in my driveway for the first like eight years of my life. So but you were a Chicago I, I, guy. I was Hakeem Olajuwon, but it was harder. Well, I can't, I can't shit on you for being from emulating players in yeah. your driveway. That's how I spent most okay. of my hours. When, when did I was a you child. officially put your wristband up mid forearm? How old oh, were middle, you when your for, wrist arm? Eleven. 11. Yeah, exactly. Immediately. Yeah. yeah, it was fifth grade. Fifth grade is when on the travel basketball team. That's when the, the wristband started getting broken out. So I think the quarterback question, similar to what I was talking about with how quickly everything has shifted with the process, I think it's fascinating how fast everything has shifted to what can they do off platform and out of structure. When did that conversation become the driving force behind this? It was probably over the last two to three years because of what Mahomes and Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson to a certain extent, I think that's a different conversation than a couple of the other guys. But that's not even a media-driven thing. Look at how pro days are structured. Look at the throws that we drool over. It's those kinds of throws. And it's amazing to me how fast that shifted based on a couple of the success stories. And I think you guys bring up Josh Allen leads me to my next question here. Obviously, I think he's the name that's really been behind a lot of these quarterback conversations. Are there a couple other players in the NFL that you guys kept coming back to, even unconsciously, as you were going through this? Guys that you're like, oh, he could be like this. He could be like that. Players that you feel like really dictated your evaluation process. Dane? Yeah, and I think, not to switch the conversation to offensive line, but which which I know Lance is all for. Uh, That's fine with me, too. <laughs> it's fascinating with arm length. And, you know, you look at this year's class. Okay, last year we had six offensive tackles drafted in the first round. 
All six were above 34-inch arms. Uh, several well above. Becton was 35 and a half. Andrew Thomas was like 36. Uh, Worfs was <laughs> talked about as maybe being a guard because he was only 34 even. This year, all the tackles <laughs> that are even mentioned as top 50 picks, we're talking, what, eight, nine players? Christian Derisaw, Virginia Tech, is the only one with above 34-inch arms. It's the uh, T-Rex crew for sure this year. It, it's, ama- it's amazing. Yeah, and especially in contrast to last year's. You got Penny Sewell, 33 and a quarter. Slater, 33 even. Dude, 33 and a quarter is typically a major concern for NFL offensive line coaches. Yeah, right. I'm just Kevin telling Jenkins you, it really is. 33 and a half. But I was, I was told by a, a scout that it was a very, very generous measuring tape on Tevin Jenkins. So that 33 and a half might may be generous. Cosme's 33 even. Eichenberg's 32 and three eighths. And Brady Christensen's 32 and a quarter. So, I mean, it's just... It's it's a really interesting conversation with tackles that I know will frustrate some, and then others are you know they they put stock in it. Um, I think you know for some teams they have that threshold where if it's thirty four inches that that's that's what they're looking for. Anything under that they're kicking inside the guard or they're not just not considering them at all. And this is, so this is a really interesting group. And I think you know if your feet and your technique are constantly consistently on time then it doesn't always matter what your length is. But your timing, if it's just a tick off, longer arms help bridge the gap. And so you want to lower your margin for error, which is obviously so important, versus the best pass rushers in the NFL compared to what we're scouting uh, at the college level. So uh, length, yeah, it could be overrated at times, but it's absolutely relevant. And, you know, just looking at this class and you're saying, okay, can you know? Can these guys be the exception, the thirty-three inch arms that can play at tackle, or is this the next Joel Batonio? Is this uh, you know? I don't want to put Zach Martin out there because I mean Zach Martin's uh, you know an All Pro. You don't want to compare these guys to an All Pro, but can they be those conversion guys that are going to move inside to guard because the length isn't there, or do you keep them at tackle and you say okay they'll be the exception because a guy like Rashawn Slater. I evaluate him as a tackle because he consistently on time to technique, the feet, the eyes consistently, but against the NFL, it's, it's a different animal. And so, uh, you know, that's why some teams have him as, as a guard or center. So it's just the length question with these tackles makes it for just a, a really interesting scenario from team to team. Lance, would you say there's one for you? I mean, I, I can't Im- imagine how many times the name Tyreek Hill has come up in player evaluations recently with fast receivers, stuff yeah. like that. Just a couple that you feel like, I, I, I can't get this guy out of my head as I filter the college game through what I've watched in the NFL over the last couple yeah, of years. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple. One, and, I'll, and I'll, I'm not going to, I don't have a particular player for DK Metcalf. But I think so. I I was that's one of the ones I hit, and I've had plenty of misses. Trust me. But the DK Metcalf I had as a top ten player in the draft, and he ended up going back into the second behind Andy. Last Isabella. round, yeah. last pick in the second round behind Andy Isabella. By the way, and <laughs> one of the reasons is because people said, "Well, you know, I know he's got the traits and he has the flashes, but the three cone slow, the change of direction." Uh, maybe he has too little body fat because those players are really tight and usually pull muscles and things. And there were all these excuses. And all I know is that humans don't walk the earth that look like him. I mean, he looks like Terrell Owens. Terrell Owens is a separate conversation. One of the freakiest humans that have, that frankly has ever existed in all of humanity from an, from a, an athlete standpoint, we saw him run. What was it? A couple months ago, ran like a four five forty. That's absolute or four, four forty. That's insane. But DK Metcalf, to me, you asked the wrong questions. 
And, and this was what stands out at every position. Are you asking the right questions? If your thing was, well, DK can't change direction. Well, what, okay. What if I were to tell you he's going to run go routes and he's going to run over routes and posts and he's going to be put in positions where the feet keep moving and he doesn't have to break down. He doesn't have to break down in his hips and sink and do this stuff. What if he's only asked to do the things he's really good at? Then what do you do with them? And you have to remember that the draft is often a series of exercises where teams find players who fit what they do. And you have to remember that. Sometimes you have to project. I have to remember when I'm looking at a negative. Well, what if his positives, you know, what are his positives and are his negatives? Is there something schematically where teams can prevent him from playing in that? For example, there's, there's different coverages. So different safeties and corners can be, can be asked to play in different coverages that minimize their mistakes. I think Paulson um, Adebo is a guy who, yeah, he's guy he had a bad tape against Gabriel Davis two years ago from Central Florida, but the guy also has phenomenal ball skills and can be put in position to where he doesn't have to worry as much about getting beat off the line of scrimmage if he's playing in some type of cover three where he's immediately in a shuffle and he's being allowed to play like that. Jeremiah Owusu-Karamoa, you know, I I understand he's 222 pounds and he hasn't really played truly off the ball. He's been in a slot. He's played safety. He's not. But I just think if you look at what he does well, it's translatable the same way it was with Darius Leonard. And I and Darius was a true linebacker in college, but he was ridiculously productive in every category you can imagine. And I see that same potential with Karamoa. I see him with the ability to cover, to blitz, to rake up the tackles. And so I think you have to be careful about a player falling short in a particular metric of testing or a particular trait. And instead, remember, what do they do well? And is there something schematically that could make them a big hit for one team where they might not be as successful for another team? Because the way you have to evaluate them is, more than likely, we're evaluating for 32 teams. So you have to evaluate them for a team that is probably going to take advantage of their I think something else that has really are. evolved with receiver, too, is when I first started doing this, I was taught, okay, wide receiver, don't make it complicated. It comes down to two things. Can he get open? Can he catch the ball? Like, and then work off from there. You know, there's plenty of subcategories after that. But start with those two premises. But for me, when, when you look at today's NFL, I think you have to add a third to that group. And it's, okay, what does he do after the catch? Can he get open? Can he catch a ball? And can he create after the yeah. after uh, after the catch? And that's where we see the Tyree kills. And you know, it, it, I think we're looking for who could be that next guy uh, in that role. And that that's become almost uh, as important as those first two criteria as scouting the position because of what Tyree Kill and a few others have done. And so, okay, uh, can Jalen Waddle be that guy? Can Elijah Moore be that guy? Uh, it, it's really brought up more conversation to the receiver position uh, in today's NFL compared to past years. And it's funny because I think a lot of that is the types of offenses we're seeing. I mean, you won't look at some of the numbers, say from 2016. There was one team in the NFL that used play action on more than 25% of their dropbacks. It was Atlanta that year. This year, I want to say that there were 14 teams that used it at least 30% of the time. And that's kind of that Shanahan influence. But the space created there, you look at guys like, the 49ers type of receivers or what A.J. Brown has been. There's so much value in that because of the space created by the structure of current NFL offenses, which brings me to my next question. I wanted to ask you guys, if even if it's a specific concept, I mean, five years ago, 
we didn't see as many RPOs with a little backside glance route in the NFL, even though it was a staple in college football. Now we see it all the time. Smart teams do it. Is there a quirk of college offense that you feel like might be the next thing that could trickle up into the league and make things easier like we were talking about earlier? Lance, is there anything that jumps out to you? Uh, not offensively. I'd say defensively, you have to look at the mirror effects. So whatever is working, you have to look at mirror effects. So I think you're going to see some defensive changes uh, come down the pipe to take advantage of safety you know, darting into uh, potential RPO looks. You know, we've seen this at Oklahoma. Um, it started at what Ohio State and in Oklahoma. Alex Grinch, a lot of the uh, uh, darting, a lot of the heavy slant action to be disruptive. I think you could see more and more of that, where you're scraping linebackers over the top and you're doing a ton of darting and scraping and slanting up front. I would say, from an offensive standpoint. There's always been the potential. We've always seen certain plays where you get outside of the pocket and you put corners in the popcorn, you know, in the blender with their, with their, where they're having to figure out, okay, the play's coming right at me. Do I worry about my wide receiver anymore? Or do I worry about the quarterback, for example, headed my way? And we've seen Florida years ago use some of that option attack where they would draw the corner in and then they'd throw what amounts is to a pass outside and it would turn into whether it's a and it could literally be a pass it doesn't have to be a lateral obviously because it's behind a line of scrimmage I think we could see more of that type of offense making its way in with more uh, mobile quarterbacks we could see new ways of putting stress and pressure on safeties and cornerbacks once they get to the flanks and and putting those wide receivers in position to be pass catchers and you know almost option attack players as opposed to blockers on the perimeter it seems like in the in the league now there's more rpos that are attacking second and third level defenders and the way that it trickled up from the league the chiefs do it a decent amount it's just fun to watch which steps each level is on and which is ahead and which is behind and how they influence one another and i do think that the league has gotten flatter over the last five years and the exchange of information and ideas has probably been more free which i think is why it's cool to see how they influence one another all right Last thing here, Dane, if you just want to kind of put a period on the end of this sentence, when you're going to think about this class, I know that where guys get drafted is going to influence this, but when you look back on this in five years, how do you think about, how do you think you'll think about this group? Um, I think, you know, obviously the opt-outs and the pandemic and all that, um, what is the ripple effect here? You know, as we go, as we move forward, what was the ripple effect of, uh, you know, did teams pick up something over this last year? that affects how they're going to scout forward. You know, we, we know there are some organizations that don't go to the senior bowl anymore. And, uh, you know, they just, they look at things differently. Well, the pandemic, it really forced teams to look at things differently and how they operate. Uh, you know, there are draft meetings being held entirely over zoom, which is just, it's crazy. That that's, that's, that, that's unheard of, but you know, our teams, when you look at uh, you know balancing work and life, and you know I know I'm talking to some scouts, they loved this past year. Yeah, they weren't on campus. Yeah, they weren't traveling as much, but they got to be with their families more. And so that's that's a part of this that teams are going to have to take into account. What did they learn this year, and how will that affect how they scout moving forward? The different practices they uh, they implement, and not just the team side, but also the player side. Mentioning these opt outs, obviously Penny Sewell. Uh, Jamar Chase, these guys are going top 10 opt-outs. But, uh, you know, we have to look at guys like Gregory Rousseau and some of these other players who opted out could have used another season of tape 
And hopefully, you know, I'm sure it's not just us we're watching. They're players in college right now that are going to be paying attention to these players. And okay, these guys opted out. They still went first round. And so does that mean that, okay, should when our, when our season's done and I, but I mean, you know, we're two and two after four weeks or, you know, two and four after six weeks at the college level, is it, am I better off uh, just saying, okay, I'm out of here. I'm gonna go prepare for the draft. And, you know, it's not, it's not going to affect me on draft weekend. I'm I still have a chance to go in the first round top 50. How will this affect how prospects and players look at opting out, maybe hitting the cruise control, different things like that. That that's, There's going to be some ramifications of how this last year played out. I'm very interested to see how, how that all plays out. Yeah, I want to follow up with Dane. I think I could give you the answer that this is a crazy deep draft, which it is. In rounds two through four, two through five, there's going to be a lot of starters that come out of this that, that go um, late day two and early day three. I really believe that at certain positions. But I think what Dane said is very, very prescient. I think that what we're looking at this year is the potential for players. We know that we, we saw the opt-outs happen with, with, you know, with bowl games. We know that bowl games created a lot of opt-outs, specifically once Leonard Fournette and uh, Christian McCaffrey did it through injuries, um, especially on the heels of Jalen Smith being injured in a bowl game. We started seeing more opt-outs, and this has become a massive – guys who have no business opting out are opting out. And what we saw this year was the phrase opt out because of COVID. It was utilized by players to just leave football. And I am very curious, at least for their college teams, um, some for medical reasons, some it was not for medical reasons. I am very curious now to see how the entire changes of 2020 – now the ability for, for players to transfer and play right away, how that impacts the draft, how the ability, more importantly, though, to Dane's point, you know, will more and more players, I believe that we're just at the the beginning of players opting out of college football. I believe from now on when the going gets tough or when players don't want to listen to a coach anymore, or when they just feel like their team can't win, you're going to see opt-outs become a massive part of college football and it will have an impact on college, and then the question is going to be how will teams view those players who leave their their team in the lurch if that's how they view it? Because the player will say, I want to be ready for the NFL draft, when the reality is players have been able to get ready for the NFL draft for years and years and years playing a regular college football schedule. I think that is going to become a bigger part of what teams now have to deal with is opting out of entire seasons where you don't play your junior year anymore and then leaving in the middle of the season. I think what we saw this year for people who say, well, that's just a pandemic year. That's not the norm. Oh, no, this is going to become the norm, I think. And how that and, and how difficult that becomes for scouts to figure things out, I think, is is going to be a big deal. Now, let me just say to Dane's point, I'm sure scouts love the ability to stay with their families more and not have to go on the road, well, I hope you don't get used to it because your ass is going to be back on oh, the yeah. road next year, <laughs> and you're going in those buildings again, and nothing's going to change from that standpoint. Yeah. All right, guys, thank you very, very much. Obviously, please check out Prospects of Pros if you guys don't listen to it. We're a couple of days away from the draft. I went back and listened to the last few episodes yesterday while cleaning out my closet pre-move. It was a great way to spend time. You guys will learn a ton. Dane just did his seven-round mock draft with – Lance and uh, Fran Duffy late last week. There's a ton of information in there that you guys think, I think you guys will learn a lot. Guys, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Uh, Dane, we will talk to you on draft night. Lance, I'm sure we'll catch up down the road, buddy. Can't wait. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. All right, guys. 
That's all. Thank you to Dane. Thank you to Lance. Really appreciate their time. It was a great conversation. Just a reminder, live draft show Thursday night. Twitter, YouTube, check the Athletic app for a push notification you guys should be getting. Me and Nate are going to be coming to you at 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. Going to be going after the 15th pick in the first round. Dane is going to be joining us intermittently. So will Lindsey Jones. Really excited about this. It would mean a lot if you guys would come join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. Cannot wait to be in person doing something again. Until then, though, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. I would sincerely appreciate that. Also, please subscribe to The Athletic. So much good stuff. We're really cranking it up here in the few days before the draft. Last week, I wrote about the health of the supporting casts for the Jets, the Niners, and the Jags as they prepare to pick quarterbacks. We have so much good stuff on the site, though. I can't even pick it all out. Every single team has some very cool team-specific content they've been working on. You cannot get ready for the draft without a subscription to The Athletic. Theathletic.com slash football show. Please go check it out. We will be back tomorrow with Lindsey Jones asking some of our big questions that we have heading into draft night. Until then, appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you later.